We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Hey, welcome everybody back. Steve Cutting with Sense Fidelium once again with Michael Graney doing another series in our episode on the beginnings of communism with this episode five, I believe it is, Catholic Doctrine. And I, think, oh. I, and I was joking. I, I was about to say Revenge of the Sith, but it's the new things versus the new things. So somebody's upset about us laughing. We already start. We already got somebody upset now. So. Carry on. <laughs> well, if, you, if we're not laughing, we're going to be crying or we're going to be ranting. So I think I prefer the laughing. Yes. We've got to have a little humor. Voice. Anyway. And anyway, the, the big question we're going to look at today is the background information on how on earth did the church get into the position it's in today? I mean, I don't think there's anybody around in the Catholic Church who can disagree with the statement that there are some serious problems floating around. And a lot of them are consistent with, you know, the, the principles of modernism, socialism, even the new age. When, when the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith starts issuing instructions on new age spiritualism, uh, you think it might be something to look into seriously and, and to take seriously. Uh, that being said, I don't know how anyone is going to take anything I say today seriously, but I can assure you, I can support every word with the solid evidence and facts. And I don't mean believe it. I mean, so, but basically, you know, as we've said before, you know, the new things are socialism, modernism, and esotericism. I call them generically new age, although probably some people who study the new age will say, well, that's not exactly correct. But I, I use new age as, you know, an alter, alternative term for, for the esoteric thought uh, that has, seems to have permeated our society. Uh, now, socialism, of course, I don't consider all that social. Modernism really isn't all that modern. In fact, as, as you recall, Pope St. Pius X called it the synthesis of all heresies, which takes it back pretty far. So it's hardly modern. I remember one commentator saying that modernism was given the unfortunate name modern, modernism, even though there's nothing particularly modern about it. And of course, the new age is not particularly new. Uh, <clears throat> now, all of this is, in my opinion, due to the influence of one man. Now, that may be an overstatement, it may be an oversimplification, but I don't think you can really understate this guy's influence. It's Monsignor John Augustine Ryan of the Catholic University of America. Born 1869, died 1945. Very critical time in the church's history. And, and frankly, in the history of the world. Because you'll notice that a lot of these things that, you know, especially Catholics might think are solely Catholic things. No. These new things are throughout society. This is why 
the social encyclicals shifted, you know, from under Gregory the 16th, they were clearly meant for Catholics. By the time of Leo the 13th, and especially Rerum Novarum, they were directed to everybody, not just Catholics. And if you read Rerum Novarum carefully, you'll see this is a universal Catholic with a small c type document. Now, of course, it has a lot of religious language. But what do you expect from the head of one of the world's largest religions? I mean, come on. I mean, who's paying him? So <laughs> you have to put it in the commercials. Anyway, in 1906, Monsignor Ryan published his doctoral thesis, and it became a bestseller. It was a living wage, its ethical and economic aspects. I have a first edition. Uh, it wasn't very expensive. It sold. It was bought by Grosset and Dunlop. I think that's how you pronounce that. You're always going to catch me on pronunciation. Doesn't matter. <laughs> if you laugh about nothing else, laugh about that. Now, his argument was very simple. It is that sovereignty doesn't lie in the human person, that is, in natural persons created by God, but in society. You know, society is actually an artificial person created by human beings for human beings. And all, and basically what Ryan did in this, was he repeated Plato's error. And it's the same error that permeates all the new things, all the early socialists, the modernists, the esotericists, the new agers, they all make the same mistake. They take sovereignty, human dignity, natural rights away from the human person and put it into some abstraction. Whether it's the office of a person or an elite group within society, or even society as a whole, which is what, Mon which is what Monsignor Ryan did. And his entire theory is based on the assumption that society has rights that actual human persons do not have. And the strange thing is that he doesn't prove this. He just asserts it. In fact, he makes this declaration in A Living Wage. Let's see. Remember, I hate to give quotes, so of course I give lots of them. Let's see. Society is, indeed, more than an abstraction. It is a real entity, a moral body, an organism, whose purpose is to safeguard the rights and promote to a reasonable degree the welfare of every one of its members. It will retain its identity after all its present members shall have perished. That's page 56 of the first edition. I slightly edited that because he, he puts in a lot of extraneous material, but that is the essence of his theory. Now, the thing is, you've heard this before. Not in exactly those words, but you have heard it before. 1825, St. Henri de Saint-Simon's New Christianity. This was the whole of society ought to strive toward the amelioration of the moral and physical existence of the poorest class. Society ought to organize itself in the way best adapted for attaining this end. And once you read, and if you're reading Living Wage, and you've read St. Simon's Principle, you say, wait a minute, he's just restating St. Simon's Principle. And basically, I should stop, I should stop saying basically, <laughs> but St. Simon's followers started a new religion, the Church of St. Simon. 
Lyon didn't go that far. What he did was try to transform Catholicism into a new religion. This is what Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, the English journalist and essayist and whatever else you want to call him. Overall, good guy. <laughs> he pretty much did everything. Uh, he said, this was a new religion under the name of Christianity, which is what Ryan was doing, whether you want to or not. Now, what I find interesting is, now, when I read that quote, I, you saw the, I stressed the word indeed, because when I was rereading this, in, you know, when I was preparing my points for this talk, I kept noticing something odd. And it reminded me of when I took American literature in college and we studied Huckleberry Finn. Did you ever read Huckleberry Finn? Oh yeah. Yeah. Long, long, long ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that might stick in your head, remember the King and the Duke? Yeah, vaguely. Every single time, and this is what the, the, my, the American lit professor pointed out, and I hadn't noticed this when I had read it as a kid, but he said, every time somebody's going to tell a lie, they start out with, alas. Every time the king or the duke says something, alas, that I, the rightful duke of Bridgewater, or alas, I, the rightful king of France, or alas, I who have done thus and so. He says, it's, it's, it's like a trigger word in Huckleberry Finn. Every time you see the word alas, you know that what follows is a lie. <laughs> and that struck me about, you know, a living wage. Every time you see the word indeed, Ryan is about to say something that he's not going to support. He's not going to prove it. He's just going to assert it. And you're supposed to take it on faith. So he said, society is indeed more than an abstraction. You never proved one word of that. You just said it. Uh -huh. Nowhere do you say, well, how is it possible that an abstraction created by human beings is more than an abstraction? Are you saying that human beings are more powerful than God, that they can create something that is greater than they are? Or perhaps that is even greater than God himself? This was Fulton Sheen's point in his first two books, his doctoral thesis and religion without God, is that according to modern philosophy, and I think he had Monsignor Ryan in mind when he wrote this, that modern philosophy turns the whole order of creation on its head. Instead of having God, human persons, and society, you have society, human persons that are created by the state, and God down there at the ser as the servant of man. Huh. That's what happens. And so whenever you see Monsignor Ryan use the word indeed, Grab your, hold your wallet. prepared for something strange and wild. Yeah. Now, then he says, you know, re society will retain its identity. Well, that's an interesting word to use, especially when you're talking about persons. Mm -hmm. Because person means that which has rights and therefore an identity, a social identity. So what Ryan was saying was that society has a social identity because it has rights of its own. So that human beings create something that has something that human beings don't have. How on earth or how in heaven or how in hell do you create something that has more than you have? Now, it's possible, and we do this all the time with technology, 
for human beings to create something that can do something they can't do individually. Like people can build computers. I can't do what a computer does, obviously. But does that mean that a computer is greater than I am? Not if I own it or control and control it. Mm -hmm. I cannot create something that is more than I am because anything that comes from something has to be either the same or less than. The only way an artificial person such as society or a business corporation or in Aristotle's thought, and this, I, actually I better not even raise that. The only way a non-person, a thing, can get rights is from a natural person that has them. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that is not a human person that does not have, that has rights by nature Except, of course, if you're a Christian, you believe that angels and God are natural persons. But we don't even need to get into that for this argument. The fact of the matter is, society is a thing. It's an abstraction. No matter what you want to call it, and the only way it has rights is by delegation from the human persons who create it. That's basic legal theory. You don't even need God in there to tell you that. Although, of course, he gave you the brain to tell you that, but that's a... And... So, a person is that which has rights. A natural person has rights by nature. And so that Ryan, on the contrary, said that socialism and modernism is the, the error of socialism and modernism is that society has rights that actual human persons do not have. Well, then where did it get it? Well, apparently it self-created it. Although some socialists will say, especially if they're Christian socialists, that God granted it to. So what Ryan said was, society has indeed, there's that word again, rights that are distinct from the rights of the individuals composing it. And its scope and aims reach beyond the welfare of the men and women that live in it at any given time. That is a remarkable statement. That implies that society has rights that it created for itself. Well, the only reason human beings have rights is because God built them into human nature. The only reason an artificial person such as society or government or a business corporation or a town should have rights is because the people who organized and created it gave them, granted them to it. Now, you've heard that before too. And you probably remember, that's Emil Durkheim. David Emil Durkheim, the modernist socialist solidarist. He was inspired by the St. Simonians, who, of course, you just heard a re-echo of St. Simon's you know, you know, theory of how society should be run. And, of course, Durkheim was that religion is the group's worship of itself. And God is a divinized society. Well, all Ryan did by stating that society has rights that actual human beings created by God don't have was claim that society is a God. So, God is now a divinized society. And remember, this is a Catholic priest teaching at the Catholic University of America coming out with this stuff in 1906 at the height of when Pius X was trying to combat modernism. I mean, four years later, he would come out with the oath against modernism. Of course, the first, claw, the first affirmation in the Oath Against Modernism is that you can prove God's existence in the natural law by reason alone. Not that you do, but you can. 
and none of this is reasonable. It all contradicts reason. So of course you want to get rid of that modernist oath, which they finally did 50 years later. Now, this, the thing is that Ryan was saying the same thing as Durkheim, who was an atheist. He was saying the same thing as St. Simon, who was a new Christian inventing a new religion, but he was dressing it up in Catholic language, which could fool people. Now remember, when we, meant, when we talked about Orestes Brownson, his big complaint about socialism was that it was hijacking Christian language, using Christian symbols, especially Catholic ones. And here is a Catholic priest doing exactly what Brownson warned against. Says, this is how so Satan deceives, could deceive the very elect by using socialism to do so, by using socialism to turn Christianity into a new religion under the name of Christianity, but it really isn't Christianity. So in Monsignor Ryan's opinion, going by what he said in his doctoral thesis, man is made for the state and does not exist as a person unless the state says so. Now, that this, he argued that society is sovereign, so the state must take care of everyone's basic needs. Well, yes, if the state is sovereign and not human persons, then the state must take care of what it created. We're all dependents of the state by nature if the state created us. Just like we are, if God created us, we're all dependent on God, aren't we? Mm -hmm. So that if society is the real God, we're dependent on society and society must take care of us. And so this is why the state has to enforce a living wage. Everyone should get a basic subsistence through labor. If you can't, you get it from welfare. People of exceptional merit should get a little bit more. And this is where distributive justice, the classical justice that Aristotle spoke of, began to transform. What Ryan did was go back to the 1830s and the socialists and, and the, the, the modernists of back then, and the esotericists as well, who were using distributive justice in a new way. They were saying that distributive justice means that you get what you need. Well, not according to Aristotle and Aquinas, distributive justice means that if I contribute 10% to a project, I get 10% of the returns or suffer 10% of the losses. Mm -hmm. It's proportional equality, whereas commutative justice, which is the basic form of all justice from which all other forms of justice derive, is that there is an equality of exchange. Commutative justice is the justice of contracts. There must be consideration in a contract and the consideration must be equal to whatever it is you're contracting for. It's the fundamental justice of all society. Well, as we'll find out in a future episode, if we get to it, if I'm not shot in the meantime or something, Ryan simply dismissed commutative justice. Get rid of it. You don't need input to have justice. All you need is distribution. So he changed all justice to distributive justice. Dismissing, you know, that whole framework built up by Aristotle and Aquinas and all those guys who were too stupid, you know, Ryan, of course, was the smartest person who ever lived, isn't he? <laughs> anyway, what Ryan ended up doing was he abolished the entire concept of natural rights and of natural persons. The state becomes the Hobbesian mortal god. 
I mean, you remember when we talked about Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan. Mm -hmm. The mortal god of the state rules on earth as the immortal god rules in heaven. Well, Ryan basically combined the two. <laughs> now, it also flatly contradicts the United States Constitution. Remember the preamble to the Constitution? What are the first three words? We the people, mm -hmm. not I the state. And the preamble says, we the people are gathering together and getting organized to do all these things by means of which we are granting rights to the state and the state is defining them for their exercise within this new country we're calling the United States of America. Which as we'll soon see in a, in a moment, was overturned. And now, as most people believe, rights come from the state, not from the human person to the state, they come from the state to the human person. Mm -hmm. Who creates human persons? And you'll, uh, <clears throat> somebody tell me I was coughing too much in the last one, they were worried that uh, I might have coronavirus or something. No, 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 I just talk too much. <laughs> now, this leads us to Ryan, Monsignor Ryan's greatest error. He claimed that rights are not part of nature, but derived from it. Now that is a profound statement when you stop to think about the implications. Because what it says is, I have to see my, my notes here, yeah, society does the deriving. Well, if society is, and Ryan explains this for several pages, if it's not, if rights are not a part of human nature, but are derived by society, that means that society is creating those rights. That means even the individual rights that Monsignor Ryan spoke of come from society, or more specifically, the state, which is the representative of society. And that means that since all rights are derived, only derived from nature and not part of nature, see, this is the subtlety of Ryan's argument. I mean, the first couple of times I read it, I didn't catch on to what was going on until I spoke with an atheist lawyer who was pointing out, well, that doesn't make sense because this is the way, you know, the legal argument should go. And I could tell this fellow he did not have a vested interest in it because he didn't believe in God anyway. He said, but where else are these rights going to come from? I said, well, where do you think they came from? He says, well, I, I, I don't know. I said, that's an honest answer. Hmm. And, I, and I actually finally convinced him he wasn't an atheist, he was an agnostic, so but big victory. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Monsignor Ryan's theory, theory, his big error, changed what it means to be a human person. And that is the legal theory behind three key cases in American history. Scott versus Sanford in 1857, the slaughterhouse cases in 1873, which hardly anybody knows about, and one with, with which you may be familiar, Roe versus Wade in 1973. What happened in Scott versus Sanford? And this, I'm, I'm using the analysis of William Winslow Krosky. He died in 1968, but he was possibly the unacknowledged greatest American constitutional scholar of the 20th century. His contention in his monumental book Politics and the Constitution and the History of the United States. I actually have a copy. Hang on just a second.
This is Krosky's incomplete book. He only completed two volumes. I mean... Lazy. I had to... Yeah, right. <laughs> the guy clerked for, for William Howard Taft when Taft was Supreme Court Justice. And he was also placed second in at Yale Law School. He was snapped up by Robert Maynard Hutchins at the University of Chicago. Huh. Uh, but anyway, this is not about Krosky, but about Krosky's analysis of what happened at, in Scott versus Sanford, which overturned the Missouri Compromise, uh -huh. and it essentially made slavery legal in all the states at the, in, at the time. According to Krosky, in order to preserve slavery, what the Supreme Court and the politicians did from 1803 on was expand judicial review beyond all bounds. Basically, what that did was remove the legislative power from Congress and vested the Supreme Court with the power to make laws, which it's not supposed to have. Now, of course, the, the, the Civil War gave the, the executive the power to create laws through executive orders, which, to be honest, Lincoln was kind of forced into it. And I think had he lived, he would have, you know, reversed what he had done during the Civil War by giving the executive too much power and would have given it back to Congress, but he was killed. And in Scott versus Sanford, what happened was that Justice Roger Taney, who was a Catholic, but a Neo-Catholic, remember the Neo-Catholic is actually a socialist, who thought that sovereignty rests in the state, not the human person, what he did, in his opinion, in Scott versus Sanford, uh, I should explain who, Dred Scott was a slave who had been taken by his master to Minnesota as his body servant. And since he then resided for a number of years in a free state, Dred Scott tried to sue for his freedom on the basis that since he had been taken to a free state, he was therefore free. Now, this was a subsequent owner because the sons of his original owners actually funded his case so that he could bring lawsuit. The Missouri Supreme Court said that you have a case, you are a free man. Mm -hmm. Sanford, the owner, appealed to the United States Supreme Court. And slight irony in judicial history, they misspelled his name, and they should have. It's, it was S-A-N-F-O-R-D. The clerk of the court misspelled it S-A-N-D-F-O-R-D, -D, so yeah, 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 your name is immortalized, spelled wrong, <laughs> as it should be. And the Supreme Court of the United States, under Justice Roger Taney's opinion, was that because citizenship is conferred by the state, so is personality. Therefore, because a black slave or even a freedman is only a citizen if the state says so. He is only a person if the state says so. Therefore, since he is not a citizen, he is not a person, he is not a free man, since he has no standing to sue. Now, then we fight a little thing called the Civil War. And in my opinion, Scott versus Sanford helped to bring about the Civil War as did a little book called Cotton is King by David Christie, which argued that the economic prosperity of the United States and the British Empire depended absolutely on the slave cultivation of cotton. 
uh, which it obviously did not, or because cotton was the single largest export from the United States from 1803 to 1937. Mm -hmm. But, and I believe 1937 was a little bit after the Civil War, so. Couple weeks, couple weeks, couple weeks later, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, the 14th Amendment, in part, was intended to overturn the opinion in Scott versus Sanford, which it did. Because if you read it, it says that all persons have natural rights. That's, that's a layman's you know, summarization you know, of, of, the, of the constitutional language. It was intended, of course, to reemphasize the natural rights of the freed slave, recently freed slaves. But it also, by extension and by explicit mention, applies to every single human being. So that when we get to Roe versus Wade, you'll see, you know, why the court's decision was so bad. But the 14th Amendment overturned Scott versus Sanford, but then the slaughterhouse cases of 1873 nullified the 14th Amendment by writing what Krosky called one of the most vaguest, dumbest legal opinions in U.S. history. It changed the case. I won't get into it because it is one of the most complicated legal cases dealing with New Orleans and Louisiana and Reconstruction and carpetbaggers and everything else. But essentially, the argument boiled down to not whether the butchers of New Orleans, obviously Slaughterhouse, uh, had the rights of private property, but whether the state of Louisiana or the federal government had the right to give them rights. I said, but that wasn't the issue at all. Well, it was under Salmon P. Chase, Chief Justice, who dissented from that opinion, he and three others but on the wrong grounds, so the, the majority opinion held. I, to exonerate Chase, he, he was a bit of a jerk, but he at least was on the semi-right side in the slaughterhouse cases. Well, the, as Krosky pointed out, the opinion in the slaughterhouse cases was so vaguely worded that it could be used either to support the 14th Amendment or overturn it, whichever the Supreme Court decided. And in 1973, what they decided was to overthrow the 14th Amendment by claiming that a fetus may be a human being, but it is not a person. But the 14th Amendment explicitly stated that all human beings are persons and therefore have rights. You can't say, you cannot separate in the United States Constitution personality from humanity. And yet that is what the Supreme Court did in Scott versus Sanford, the slaughterhouse cases, and in Roe versus Wade. So that is not the end of our story. We're getting into the good parts now. So. That was just the salad. <laughs> What's that? That was just the salad. <laughs> oh, you betcha. We're getting, we, we haven't even gotten into the soup and nuts. We're, we'll get to the nuts in a minute. And I really mean nuts. <laughs> I said, now, remember, Ryan's whole theory was based on the assertion, not, not even proven, that society has rights that human beings do not have, the actual human beings. Now, in 1937, Pius XI came flat out and said, only man 
The human person and not society in any form is endowed with reason and a morally free will. That's paragraph 29 of Divini Redemptoris. And I have quoted that to people who keep asserting that, no, no, society has rights. It has social rights. It's, you know, socialism is good. Modernism is good. Uh, the New Age stuff is great. Well, what about that? Well, that doesn't mean what you think it means. Well, then what does it mean? That's when they start running away. Now, what does the Catholic Church really teach about society? Uh, most of this is going to sound really negative. Ryan, excuse me, I, I must say Monsignor Ryan because I don't want to sound pejorative. He, he was, he was a Monsignor, he should be called a Monsignor. Uh, society is not more than a human created abstraction. And now I could give big long arguments to show that why, but we've already done it. Society is not a moral body. Society is not to promote human welfare directly, except as we shall see in a moment, as an expedient and emergency under the principle of double effect. Society has no existence apart from the human minds it created, despite what Ryan asserted. And society has no rights in and of itself. All that you can get from Pius XI's simple statement that only man, the human person, and not society in any form, is endowed with reason and a morally free will. All that is contained in that statement. If you understand what a person is, what a human being is, what morally free will is, what reason is, you do have to understand a few things. You cannot take all you know, Catholicism on faith alone. Unless, of course, you're a Lutheran, in which case you're not a Catholic. Uh, that, that was kind of mean. I have met many Protestants who are, in many ways, more Catholic than a lot of the Catholics. So. But I did have to get my dig in. Now, what is the proper role of the state in Catholic doctrine? Now, of course, now I get to read another quote. This is from Rerum Novarum, paragraph 7. Man precedes the state and possesses, prior to the formation of any state, the right of providing for the substance of his body. In other words, primary care of the human person is the human person, not the state, which is what Ryan called that the state has primary responsibility to take care of everybody. We're all dependents of the state, which is another way of saying we're all slaves of the state. Now, then what, now how is this, what is the role of the state? It says, when what necessity demands has been supplied and one standing fairly taken thought for, it becomes a duty to give to the indigent out of what remains over. It is a duty not of justice, which would place it under the state. And it says, not of justice, save in extreme cases, but of Christian charity, a duty not enforced by human law. That flatly contradicts what Ryan said about the state having direct responsibility for human welfare. And it's in the document that Ryan claimed he was using as his primary source. There is no way that any rational person can read that and then come up with what Ryan said, unless you have an interested motive and are trying to change what Catholic truth means. Actually, you're trying to change what truth itself means. Because now, the exception, in extreme cases, are you just supposed to let people starve to death? Of course not. But 
there the state can justify a redistribution it can levy an extra tax or something or or confiscate enough to keep people alive and in reasonable health during the emergency the moment the emergency is over however people have to get organized and restructure the social order and fix our institutions so that people can take care of themselves again you're not supposed to leave people as permanent dependents but that is what the whole social policy of so many people today is. The state must take care of everything. Nanny state. No, that's not what the Catholic Church teaches. That is not the new Christian. That is not today's Catholicism. It may be the new Christianity. It may be what certain popular politicians want. And I believe that over the last couple of days, the National Catholic Reporter said something about how one certain politician is the new face of Catholicism or the, the new direction of the church. I won't mention any names. Yeah, I hate to, I, you know, I, don't say AOC, whatever you say. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't hear that. You didn't step on my lines. Let's see. Now, the state distributes according to need only as an expedient in an emergency and per the principle of double effect. Otherwise, it's the state's job to provide a level playing field equality of access to opportunity and means to participate in the common good and the common good is not the aggregate of individual goods it is something special it is that vast network of institutions within which human beings as moral being human persons as moral beings acquire and develop virtue and so bring themselves closer and closer into conformity with the image and likeness of god and of course, to do that, you have to take care of material needs, because if you, you're not eating or anything, well, then you're going to be worried about that and not worrying about developing more as a person. Now, of course, if, if you're not a Christian, well, then you're conforming closer and closer to nature. This was Aristotle's argument, which had a few flaws in it, but they were corrected by Aquinas. Again, you don't have to accept God as your Lord and Savior in order to understand any of this it's common sense what is the best what what should society be arranged to do well to help people conform to their own nature and that means not treating them as slaves or children or dependents but helping them to become more fully human you don't need god in that argument of course it helps but it, it, you don't need it for the argument <laughs> you need God to help develop that argument, but that's another whole issue. Uh, now, we're just before earth, anybody gets upset at him, he's not saying you don't need God. It's just like uh, natural law with thou shalt not murder. You don't need God to say you don't need to kill somebody. It's written yeah, in our hearts. Natural reason. Yeah. Uh, the knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law written in the hearts of all men may be known by the force and light of human reason alone. Just throwing it out there. Somebody's going to get mad about that, so I figured I'd throw that out there. <laughs> We're going to get mad anyways. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I'll also give them something to misunderstand that we can disprove. <laughs> now, what was the source of Monsignor Ryan's reliance on these new things of socialism, modernism, and new age? Well, here's where we get to the deja vu all over again. He was influenced very heavily by Henry George and Father Edward McGlynn. He had to he say McGlynn. He had to say McGlynn again. <laughs> yep, the excommunicated priest, Father Edward McGlynn, and the agrarian socialist, Henry George. Now, Ryan, in his autobiography, 
mentioned that he had read Progress and Poverty as a teenager. And George's book inspired him to devote his life to social justice. Of course, he changed the definition of social justice, but that's another issue. He considered McGlynn unjustly persecuted for his beliefs, which of course makes you wonder what he meant by justly persecuted. And he seems to have taken Father McGlynn as both a model and a warning to proceed very cautiously with what he was doing. I mean, Ryan liked to claim that he was being persecuted. He said this a lot, but he was very, very careful not to do anything that was technically contrary to canon law or even church discipline. Very careful. What he did was put these things in his books in such a way that most people wouldn't understand it, which is a really great way to avoid censure and especially excommunication. Not that he would have been excommunicated for his thought. You can't, no, the church is not going to excommunicate you for what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Or even, in many cases, what you're saying. It's when you really prove yourself obdurate and are being disobedient or being obviously an idiot that excommunication is not a punishment, it's a remedy. It's a way to try to wake people up that something's wrong. And you're always supposed to be open to, uh, to, you know, to, to bringing people back into the church. Look at the years of effort it took to get McGlynn back into the church after his excommunication. So, of course, McGlynn was out there praying that all this was, being, was more persecution. They're trying to do something to get him to change his mind. I thought, no, they weren't. All you had to do was agree to go to Rome apologize to all the people you insulted and accept Rero Novar. How terrible. You weren't being forced to give up your socialism or anything else. Anyway, so we're getting now, 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 not for the fun part, if you want to call it fun. If you have a strange idea of fun, Monsignor Ryan's greatest influence was a guy named Ignatius Loyola Donnelly, born in 1839, died the first day of the 20th century, January 1st, 1901. And don't get into that whole bit whether the first year was 1900 or 1901. It was 1901, trust me. I can assert too. <laughs> anyway, as Ryan said, and this is on page 12 of his book, Donnelly exercised more influence upon my political and economic thinking than any other factor. Keep that in mind, because now, we're in for it. What was it, that one Betty Davis movie where she says, fasten your seatbelts, you're in for a bumpy ride. As Monsignor Ryan also said, he said, I became much interested in the proposals for economic reform advocated by Donnelly, the Farmers Alliance, and the Knights of Labor. Now, the Farmers Alliance was an agrarian reform movement. It was founded by Donnelly, and it later merged into the Populist Party. You know, William Jennings Bryan, Cross of Gold, Crown of Thorns, that sort of thing. And the Knights of Labor were a very important labor organization. And that is a whole saga in and of itself. Uh, it was headed by Terence Powderly. And he avoided the condemnation that was accorded to the Canadian Knights of Labor by making certain promises to Cardinal Gibbons. And unfortunately, he did not meet the conditions, but then the condemnation was not carried out. 
So it, it was a very strange story. To try to give Powderly his due, he was torn so many different ways that he may, might not have been able to meet the conditions imposed. But he also evidently felt guilty about it because he started attacking Cardinal Gibbons. But as I said, that's another whole story which we won't get into. It was, it was rather sad. Uh, now, to return to Donnelly, however, this is where we're getting back to the fun. Ryan used to cut class at seminary when he was, you know, in, in it was either Minneapolis or St. Paul. I, I can never tell the difference. Now all the Minnesotans are going to write in letters of hate against me. It says, whenever Donnelly spoke, Ryan cut class and he went to, you know, listen to him and sit at the feet of his idol. His, his fellow seminarians called him the senator because he was absolutely obsessed with Donnelly. All he ever talked about was Donnelly. I thought, well, shouldn't you be studying to be a priest instead of studying, you know, what this politician is saying? And by his own admission, Ryan's social doctrine derived directly from Donnelly. So his interpretation of Catholic social teaching came from Donnelly. And who was Donnelly? He was a former Catholic turned spiritualist. Sometime in the 1850s or so, he seems to have left the practice of the Catholic faith and announced that he was now a believer in spiritualism. You know, spirit knocking, crystal balls, spirit writing. Uh, if it had been the 1890s when the Ouija board was invented, he'd have been using a Ouija board. He was a populist who hated William Jennings Bryan, the great commoner. Now, many years ago, before I started the research for this, I didn't care for William Jennings Bryan. I don't know why, I just didn't. I still don't, but I have a great deal of respect for him. He was an honest man. I don't agree with a lot of the ideas he espoused, and I believe he was unfairly ridiculed in that Inherit the Wind movie, you know, the character based on him. But he was an honest man, even if you disagreed with him. Uh, he also didn't care for Henry George. Henry George tried to keep getting his endorsement, and Brian wouldn't give it. One time, during his second uh, mayoral campaign in 1897, George announced that he had Brian's endorsement. Brian was in Evansville, Indiana, which is where I'm from. And he heard about this, instantly sent a telegram saying in, in the chilliest possible terms that he had nothing to do with Henry George and it was not interested in his mayoral campaign and had said nothing in endorsement of it. When, when Brian met with Leo Tolstoy, you know, Count Tolstoy, he wrote War and Peace, he said they only disagreed on two things, Tolstoy's pacifism and Tolstoy's admiration for Henry George. <laughs> Didn't care for Henry George. Uh, Donnelly, to return to him, the, to our target today, excuse me, our hero for the moment, uh, was also known as America's Prince of Cranks. Now, crank was a 19th century, early 20th century term for Looney Tune. He was also, are you ready for this? A primary source for Madame Blavatsky's theosophy. He was cited dozens of times in The Secret Doctrine, a book written in 1888. Wow. I once, yeah. <laughs> I told you. And to keep using the catchphrase I stole from Anna Russell, I'm not making this up, you know. I can prove every single thing. I once counted the number of sites in The Secret Doctrine. And it was in the dozens, I forget what. But of course, the, the secret doctor was dictated by Madame Blavatsky's spirit guides, but I guess they relied a lot on, you know, 
Ignatius Loyola Donnelly too. Uh, now, what was interesting is that in his obituary uh, from January 10th, 1901 in the Toledo Blade, a newspaper that I think still exists, says Donnelly was ruled by his imagination more than logic. Though he was a man of great mental powers, he was dominated by the erratic and the unfounded. Even after he died, they couldn't speak too well of him. Now, but he was, he was elected to the United States Congress during the Civil War, of which his enemies made much hay because they said, how come all these other Minnesotans were volunteering for the army and all you could do is run for office and criticize the people who were volunteering for the army? I thought, what was it? Minnesota had the Iron Brigade? Or what no, was that? I'm, I'm in trouble now. I don't remember whether the Iron Brigade was Michigan or Minnesota. Please don't send, don't send hate mail. <laughs> it was probably Minnesota because that's where the Iron Bowl is. Uh, probably. And why the, they were, well, we won't get into that. <laughs> but in 1875, Donnelly was accused of having accepted and given bribes while a member of Congress. He was a member of Congress from 1863 to 1869. Now, in 1875, when this accusation first came up, he threatened to sue the accuser for $5,000. Nothing ever came, came of it. Uh, the amount of the bribe that he was accused of having taken was $50,000. It had something to do with the presidential campaign of John Fremont. And, uh, and it's something to do with El Paso, uh, the one in, in Texas, not the one in Illinois. Uh, which was odd because he was congressman from Minnesota. And $50,000 is a heck of a lot of money back then. That was about a century's worth of really good wages for a working man. Because mm -hmm. if you were paid a dollar a day back then, $300 a year, you were not bad off. Uh, unless, you, of course, you worked for a company town, in which case you lived in company housing and that was deducted from your pay and shopped at the company store, which was deducted from your pay, so that a dollar didn't quite go as far as it might do on the economy. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, then he was again accused of the same thing in 1880, and nothing seems to have come of it. Nothing really happened until it was published in the Pioneer Press of St. Paul, Minnesota in 1891, whereupon he sued for $100,000. Now that's quite a bit of money. And his defense was, he admitted taking the money, but he said it was legal fees. $50,000 worth of legal fees in 1865. Some heck of legal fees. <laughs> oh, you betcha. And the court said, well, it's, there's nothing illegal about your practicing your profession while a member of Congress. Actually, the, the Congress didn't, you know, make that, un put it into its code of ethics explicitly until 2008, believe it or not. And the, uh, he didn't get his $100,000 in damages, however, he was awarded $1 in damages and $5 in costs. And the Pioneer Press of St. Paul, Minnesota had to pay up $6. <laughs> really hurt them. <laughs> Actually, they got more than $6 worth of publicity. They yeah. hated him. Yeah. <laughs> We're calling him names. The real reason he wanted to sue them is because they'd been lambasting him in print for years. 
<clears throat> now, but that's not all. He was not only accused of being a crooked politician, he was a historian. And he published two books of history of Atlantis that were dictated to him by his spirit guides. These were Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, which came out in 1882, and was the book cited by Madame Blavatsky in her book, The Secret Doctrine, which was dictated to her by her spirit guides. So evidently, her spirit guides were reading the work of Donnelly's spirit guides. And... <laughs> There's a term for this, foobar. I'm not making this up. <laughs> <laughs> and also Ragnarok, the age of fire and gravel, which came out in 1883. I don't know why Madame Blavatsky didn't like that one. She probably. <laughs> where's, where's the Marvel Thor movie? <laughs> anyway. Hey, I like the mask. Well, of course, that wasn't the Marvel Thor movie, but. Yeah. <laughs> and they. I, I'm. Not, Never forgive them for screwing up John Carter of Mars. How dare they? One of my favorite characters. Of course, I realize this. Have you ever seen those, those articles on John Carter, the sort of theosophy, where they show that Edgar Rice Burroughs lifted a lot of the weird stuff in his Mars novels from theosophy, huh. which, of course, he was using it only because it was, you know, made for fun reading and it was nuttiness, and he knew it. In fact, when Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote A Princess of Mars, which was originally Under the Moons of Mars, he was afraid that they would think he was a lunatic. So he put his name as Normal Being, meaning there was nothing wrong with his head. <laughs> they thought it was a misprint and said Norman Bean in, in, the, in the pulp magazine, which was first per, per, published. <laughs> so Burroughs didn't believe any of this stuff. He just thought it was great to put it into a book because it was so loony. <laughs> It did make a great story. Yeah. As fiction. Now, uh, okay. He wrote those, but not only was he a historian, he was also a novelist. Now, I admit I have not read any of these novels, nor have I been tempted to. He wrote science fiction and fantasy novels. I am a fairly big fan of science fiction and fantasy, especially the late 19th century stuff that a lot of people don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. I have a whole lecture on Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson's, you know, science fiction classic, Lord of the World, which was a satire, by the way, not a prophecy. It's just, a, no, no, really, I have a... <laughs> and so, Donnelly, according to, to, to Ryan, Monsignor Ryan, his novels contained innovative concepts that were integrated into Donnelly's political thought. So basically what you're saying is that your understanding of Catholic social teaching is based in part upon fictionalized ideas from novels of science fiction and fantasy from a guy who also wrote histories of Atlantis dictated by his spirit guides. Do I have that correct? <laughs> Yes, it's in your your own autobiography. Okay, he wrote three of them, at least that I was able to find out about. Uh, as Edwin, under the pen name Edmund Bois-Gilbert, I think I pronounced that correctly, Caesar's Column in 1890, and Dr. Huguet, a novel in 1891. And then under his own name, in 1892, he wrote, excuse me, The Golden Bottle, or the story of Ephraim Benezet of Kansas. 
I don't want to read them. I, I'd rather read some of these other really strange ones that make no pretense of being, you know, serious. And some of them are not. Now, we're coming up on our conclusion now because I don't think how people can take too much of this. Uh, so Ryan, he, he really appeared to believe that Donnelly's interest in the occult, you know, demonstrated his, his intellectual scope. He came flat out and said this. I mean, frankly, to me, interest in the occult argues either, you know, an in, incompletely formed mind or someone who has an interested motive or you're just plain loony. Now, I realize that there are honest believers in, in that stuff, but I consider that their reason is incompletely formed or, or they aren't completely educated. So I'll, I'll, give the, I'll cut them slack. But the people who do it with an interested motive or because they, they, they should know better. There, there's something wrong in there. Now, if you really put the capper on it, Donnelly believed, and he seems to be the source of this, he believed that Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare's plays. And he came up with whole theories for this. And he was, uh, his idea was that Bacon allegedly used the plays to convey occult spiritualist messages to his followers in the future. And he wrote, in 1887, he came out with the Shakespeare myth. And in 1888, he came out with the great cryptogram, Francis Bacon's cipher in Shakespeare's plays. I believe it was this book that he traveled to London to argue before one of the royal societies or other and present his case for Bacon's authorship of Shakespeare's plays, and they hooted him out of the auditorium. Not even the English will take this. P.G. Woodhouse had a field day with this in a couple of his short stories where he had some member of the, do you know about the Drones Club? You know, the, the, the men about town who are practically non compos mentis. But one of them was trying to make time with a girl whose aunt was a Baconian who bought entirely into this whole Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare's plays bit. And he inserts some of these arguments into the short story, and it is total gobbledygook. Rubbish. <laughs> yeah. Mashed potatoes, banana oil. And anyway, and in 1899, he finished it off with the cipher in the plays and on the tombstone. And he developed these enormously complex formulae to prove this. And the cryptogram theory is why G.K. Chesterton actually alluded to Donnelly in The Everlasting Man. He said he called him some American crank. And the first couple of times, of course, when I read The Everlasting Man, I didn't catch on until something clicked and I realized, oh, he's talking about Ignatius Loyola Donnelly, the primary source for Monsignor John A. Ryan's social theories, which, of course, Chesterton, you know, I'll put it mildly, deprecated. Well, when we get into Ryan and Sheen and Chesterton, we'll get into that in much greater depth. But not, not in today's exciting episode. Uh, anyway, the, one of the reviewers back in 1888, you know, the, 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 the cryptogram, which, which one was it? The, uh, the, great, the great cryptogram reviewed it and called it a worthless and silly piece of nonsense the work of a crank or a humbug. Such men as Mr. Donnelly can thrive only when the ignorant and the curious support them. Now, 
The interesting part about that was this was in a newspaper called the Boston Evening Transcript. The transcript was a Georgist newspaper. It supported Henry George to the hilt when nobody else would. Donnelly was a Georgist, one of Georgia's strongest supporters. Even the Boston Evening Transcript couldn't swallow what Donnelly was saying about Shakespeare. Now, and that pretty much sums up the guy who influenced Monsignor John A. Ryan of the Catholic University more than anything else. And the bottom line here and our conclusion is that Ryan's Monsignor Ryan's interpretation of Catholic social teaching is based on an unsound philosophical and scientific principles and guided by suspect faith principles. I mean, it's the new Christianity. It's Durkheim's divinized society. society religion is the group's worship of itself. And then it's basically, it can only be described as Fabian. And in a future episode, I, I, I hope to give, you know, the whole, at least a, a synopsis of the, what the Fabian society and its rather horrifying influence on Christianity, especially the Church of England. Boy, it took a beating. Uh, but Fabian socialism is socialist, it's modernist, and it's esoteric, it's new age. Although they didn't like to get into the spiritual stuff too much, they did like the other part of theosophy. So that what Ryan's interpretation of Catholic social teaching meant that if you really want to understand where all the nuttiness in the Catholic Church is coming from today, I am of the opinion that it comes from Monsignor Ryan. And it's the epitome of what the Catholic Church has been fighting for over 200 years. So it's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> no novum sub soles. One of, one of the things I remember from Latin. <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, appreciate that. Yeah, that was uh, interesting to say the least. <laughs> That's one way of putting it, yes. Well, we'll see you next time. I appreciate it as always. Okay. <laughs>